Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. All right, this will be the last message in this series on one word life changers. Uh, Each week, we've looked at one simple word that if you allow it to, can actually change your life. This week, we look at a tremendous word. Uh, It's a word that can bring enormous freedom and meaning but it's the most countercultural word of this series. Uh, I like to get to it like this. Uh, There are two different ways you can do life, and this can be expressed physically with your hand. Uh, If you were to take your hand and squeeze it into a fist like this, uh, if there was something in there that you really wanted to hold on to, like you're you're clenching it, you're squeezing it, you don't wanna let it go, You can go through life that way with your stuff. Uh, We can live life this way. Or you can take your hand and you can open it up before God, saying to God, whatever comes into my life, I'll hold it loosely. Uh, I'll share it easily. I'll trust you fully. You can go through your life with your hand clenched, or you can go through your life with your hand opened. The word that's behind this kind of life is the word enough. To say, God, I'll trust you that you'll give me enough, uh, that you're the God of enough, that you're the God of abundance, so I don't have to be a taker. So many people go through life as takers. I mean, you can, you can smell it. Uh, I have a little taker in me. You have a little taker in you. I don't wanna be a taker. I want to be a giver. Uh, I want to live life with an empty hand, with an open hand. And that actually starts by saying, enough. I've had enough. I have enough. I don't need more. In fact, the inability to say enough, which is rampant where we live, is actually fatal. You know, this is true for many species. Uh, You take a goldfish, for example. Uh, If you were to think, you know, it must be a dull life being a goldfish swimming around in a little fishbowl. I mean, there's nothing else to do besides swim all day. So if you take uh, the entire fish food jar and you dump it in the bowl, what will happen to that fish? It'll die because a goldfish is not smart enough to be able to say enough. I've had enough. Maybe you're wondering how I know that's true. Well, I had a goldfish once when I was a kid. There's a Stanford researcher who did a famous research project. Uh, He asked people in Paris, France, when do you know you've had enough to eat? It's very interesting. In Paris, the most common answer is when I feel full, then I stop. I just say enough. They asked people in America, I think it was in the, the Midwest somewhere, and the answer was completely different. People said either it's when the food is all gone, when my plate is clean, or when the television show I'm watching while I'm eating is done. Then I figure I've had enough. They did these experiments that became famous in social science circles where they would give people bowls of soup 
and half of the subjects got what were called bottomless bowls of soup. Uh, they have soup, but the bottomless bowls are actually secretly filled from the underneath uh, of the table, from underneath the tablecloth. They find that people whose bowls keep getting filled end up eating about twice as much food as people whose bowls are not miraculously filled. And it's not because they're hungry. It's not because they need it. It's because we don't know when to say enough. Now, this is true when it comes to stuff and possessions and money. We all want to think of ourselves as being generous people. I don't know anyone who sets out to go through life with their hand clenched. But I want to invite you to have the courage to take a look at yourself. Because as a nation, we don't live with our hand open. I mean, the state of the art study on generosity in our day most recently is in a book called American Generosity. And the researchers found that 84% of Americans give away zero to 1% of their income. Millions of people who have way more than enough in this land where God has given us so much, we give away nothing. Only 3% of Americans give at the level of a tithe. If you know much about the Bible, you know God established this practice with Israel a long time ago called tithing. Tithing means you give 10% of whatever God brings into your life as an expression of trust. God, you've given me enough. As an expression of trust and generosity, whatever comes into my life, I'll give 10% automatically, immediately back to you. 97% of people who live in this land of so much abundance, of way more than enough, do not give at that level. And if you're not doing that, I hope you think about that today as a result of this message. Am I gonna live with a clenched fist or am I gonna live with an open hand? Now there's a reason we end up living with a clenched fist. We don't set out to. I was thinking this week, you can kind of picture it this way. Uh, for all of us, uh, there's whatever amount of money I have, like my, my current level of income and possessions. And then there's an amount uh, that I want, uh, the amount that I think would be enough, the amount in between what I have and what I think would be enough is the discontentment zone. Because I think I don't have enough right now, but if I had uh, that much, as much as other people, well, then I would be content. And we'll spend our whole lives trying to fill that gap. We'll work harder, we'll work longer, we'll run faster, we'll acquire more. I mean, we'll work so hard to do that and maybe we'll actually end up getting there. We'll get to that more spot, but we still won't be content. Because then we'll think, well, if I would have only more, then I would be content. It turns out to be like, like what I thought was enough isn't enough. Enough ends up being this very elusive amount. And now I have a new discontentment zone. People go through their whole life and think, man, if I just had more stuff, more money, a bigger house, a newer car, I'm not there yet, but I'll get there someday. We think if I could just afford stuff that costs more money, my moments uh, may, if they had a bigger price tag you know, attached to them, then I would be happier. I and mean, it's so insane. And we should know this. 
from really early on in life. You know, when, when our kids were very small, we took them to Disneyland. Uh, we went in July when it was terribly hot. It was like 98 degrees in the shade. I mean, Disney characters in costumes were like dropping from heat stroke. Uh, we got there real early in the morning. By about 1.30 in the afternoon, the kids were just done. They were miserable. They were cranky and hot. And all they wanted to do was go on the small world ride because that's the only ride that was air conditioned. I mean, the adults couldn't stand to hear it's a small world on repeat for one more ride. And so I said, you know, well, we can't go on. It's a small world. You know, we have to go see Snow White. We haven't seen Snow White yet. I'm trying to like pump them up. You haven't seen Snow White yet. I don't care. I don't want to see Snow White. I just want to go on. It's a small world. We can't go on. It's a small world. We haven't uh, gone to Pirates of the Caribbean yet. I don't care about pirates. I just want to go on. It's a small world. We can't go on. It's a small world because I paid a hundred dollars for you to come to the happiest place on earth. And I expect a hundred dollars worth of happiness. So you give it to me right now or I'll give you something to be happy about. You know, we go through life thinking happiness can be purchased. If I just had enough money, then I would have enough happy. Let me tell you this. Selfish people are the most miserable people. And generous people are the most joyful people. This is just true. I mean, do your own research. Selfish people are the most miserable people and generous people are the most joyful people. And so I ask you, will you declare enough? And I know this is countercultural because we live in a part of the world that will tell you if you ever declare enough, if you're not getting more and bigger and better, you're not living the good life. But the reality is to say, I have enough and I wanna move into generous living, it's countercultural, but it's the only way that leads to joy. And we're gonna to learn today about a man who discovered the word enough. And this is not about him, it's about God's call for you and for me. What if we were to say enough, I have enough. God, I'm trusting you and I want to become a generous person. Like what if our church was to be a church of the open hand? All right, this is the story from Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now from these few words, we already know a fair amount about Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus understood money. He was good with money. Uh, he was highly motivated by money. We know this because Israel was occupied by Rome and Rome had learned when they would occupy a country, uh, don't exile the people, leave most of them there, just tax them. Then Rome could get a lot of money. That meant they would need from within Israel a few people who would serve as tax collectors because those are the guys who knew where the wealth is. A tax collector would be someone in Israel who could say, you know, this guy has 50 sheep and 50 head of cattle and 100 acres. You could get a lot of money out of him. People in Israel didn't like tax collectors because they colluded with oppressive Romans. Now, if I'm a rich Israelite, I'd go to a guy like Zacchaeus and say, man, don't tell Rome about my money. And then Zacchaeus, tax collectors, would typically say, well, okay, but if you want me to be quiet, you're going to have to pay me off because I'll have to give them something. 
And then often the tax collectors would go ahead and tell the Romans anyhow. So, so no one liked tax collectors. So this is Zacchaeus's game. He's already given up on relationships. He's already given up on community. No one likes him, but he's okay with that because he's rich and he's good at it. But over time, there's something empty about it. There is a hunger inside of him for something more. Something is happening in his heart. And so he's interested in this man, Jesus, this rabbi, this spiritual teacher. You would never expect a tax collector, let alone a, a chief tax collector who is wealthy, to be interested in a spiritual teacher, but he is. And the strangest thing happens. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now you'll notice in this story, there are a lot of interesting little details. Uh, it's not just a tree, it's a sycamore fig tree. You know, scholars say almost certainly Luke, the writer of this gospel, the gospel of Luke, got these details directly from Zacchaeus. And these details reveal uh, just how unusual this story is. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, rich, powerful men didn't run. I mean, it, was, it wasn't dignified. They wore robes. I mean, you can't run well in a robe, but Zacchaeus runs. Something in him really wants to see Jesus, wants to get ahead of the crowd. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, a rich, powerful man never climbed trees in public where other people could see him. I mean, they'd be mocked for doing that. Even in our day, rich, powerful people don't do that very much. But Zacchaeus does that because he really wants to see Jesus and maybe he wants to hide. We're told in this story that he's short. Uh, you may know the old song kids used to sing in Sunday school, uh, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know, no one likes to be a wee little man. And maybe that's part of why Zacchaeus was drawn to money. You know, money can make you feel big. Money can make you feel like somebody. Money can make other people look at you like you must be somebody, like you must be a big man. But this must be wearing off for Zacchaeus, like it does for anyone. And then the most amazing thing happens, he's up in the tree, he doesn't want anyone to see him. You know, he's a tax collector. No one likes him. He thinks he's hidden, but he's going to be able to see Jesus. And then Jesus does what no one expects. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Really, Jesus? Like of all the houses in Jericho, of all the religious people, of all the rabbis, who are there of all the other devout people, you're gonna go stay at the home of this horribly corrupt bureaucrat, really? You see, the thing about Jesus is this is the wonderful news. Like whatever your financial story is, maybe you're a train wreck, maybe you've been through bankruptcy, maybe you feel like a failure, maybe you've been dishonest, maybe you've been greedy, maybe you've cheated, maybe you've embezzled, maybe you've been in prison. None of that is a barrier to Jesus coming to your house today. He loves bringing grace to anyone who will open themselves up. And the strangest thing happens, Zacchaeus, who at first must have been like, no, Jesus, you know, don't look up here. He comes down and he says, you've got to be kidding me, Jesus. My house? You see, this is astounding. No one saw this coming. 
In fact, the story goes on. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the, the guest of a sinner. And we know how much they hate this. You know, quite often in the Bible, Jesus does stuff that will tick one group off or another, so people mutter. You know, sometimes the Pharisees mutter. Sometimes the, the Sadducees mutter. This is the only time in all of the New Testament that we're told all of the people mutter at what Jesus did because no one liked tax collectors. Jesus is going to the home of Zacchaeus? Seriously? All right, we'll talk more about this in just a moment. How many of you guys run? and like run for exercise, running to the fridge or away from a screaming toddler doesn't count. A survey from a few years ago found that 15% of, of US adults run. Another survey found that only 8% of that group actually likes running, which seems fitting. Like most Americans, I wasn't a big fan of running, but when I moved to LA, I worked with a group of people who were ultra runners. They ran races that were over a marathon, so usually a 50K or 50 miles or 100 miles. And these races are in the mountains, so it was a part hiking, part running. And because I was looking for something to fill my time with, I started joining them on these runs. I had never ran before, I played water polo. And so my first foray into running was trail running. And naturally, I started signing up for races. My first 50-miler was actually here in San Francisco, and it's a tough race. Most ultramarathons have what's called aid stations, so your race is broken up by these stations that have food and medicine. Halfway through my first race, I was struggling. I had trained, but probably not enough, and I was dehydrated and tired. My brain was saying, don't quit. DNF, but don't finish. But I wanted that medal. So I started a new thought process, and rather than counting down the miles I had, I just started thinking about aid stations. See, for my brain, running the 8 or 10 or 12 miles to the next aid station was easier than knowing I still had 35 miles left. Every time I saw that next tent in the distance, I grew with excitement. I made it, and that elation fueled my tired legs. I was thinking about this race experience as Matt's been talking about Zacchaeus. The story of Zacchaeus is a story about running towards something. Zacchaeus ran towards something that he thought brought hope and wholeness. Oh, we see something similar in the story of the prodigal son. The dad also ran towards the son. Bucking all tradition, the father threw off his robes and he ran to something he lost. Zacchaeus and the father threw off the weight of tradition and expectation, threw off the weight of cultural norms and role expectations, and they ran towards what they lost, what they'd given up on. And the act of running changed them. I never finished that first ultramarathon. An old injury was too much to overcome, and so I had to drop from the race at the last aid station. But I wasn't sad or upset. I had run further than I had ever ran, and my mind was forever changed because while I didn't receive a fancy medal or the praise of my friends at the finish line, I had found a new level of endurance and strength that I never had before. The running changed me, and even though I failed on paper, I knew I had won. The father and the prodigal son and Zacchaeus here ran, and they moved toward something they had lost, and they were changed because of it. They found that their family and that Jesus were enough, even though it wasn't what culture would tell them was enough. And some of us need to do the same today. We need to run from whatever is driving us and we need to run towards the things we have lost in our relationship with Jesus. 
Matt's going to finish the story of Zacchaeus the runner, and he's going to reveal the transformational ending. Let's rejoin and hear not only how the story plays out for the characters, but also how the story impacts our lives. All right, so Jesus goes to the home of Zacchaeus. Uh, Wouldn't you love to know the conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus, what that was like? Uh, We don't get to know, except for the very end. But whatever it was, it triggers these thoughts that Zacchaeus has never had before. And he starts to think about his financial life. He looks at the house that he's lived in and he's really proud of, but it starts to look different to him. Like maybe it's a, a kind of a prison. I wonder if Jesus was saying stuff to him like, Zacchaeus, your whole life long, you've been a money guy. Like you get money and you love money, but is it getting you where you hoped it would? Zacchaeus, there was a time when you had to walk everywhere because you had nothing. And then you became a tax collector and you got really good at it. And one day you could buy a donkey. I mean, and that was pretty cool. But then the thrill kind of wore off. And then you thought, hey, I could get rid of this donkey and I could upgrade to a camel. I mean, the camel in the ancient world was kind of like a Hummer in our day, you know, kind of like an all-terrain vehicle. I mean, that would be really cool. And then the thrill kind of wore off on that. So you got a camel with two humps. (laughs) Those are quite rare in the Middle East. And that's like having a luxury camel with a little safety seat for the kids in the middle of the two humps. Then eventually that new camel smell wears off and the, the thrill is kind of gone from that. And now you have to have a whole fleet of camels. How many camels is it going to take, Zacchaeus? You used to wear shabby clothes and then you started to get some money and you bought a silk robe. I mean, that was cool. And then you got another one and then you got a whole closet full of them. And then you had your colors done and you found out you're a winter and you had to get rid of all those earth tone robes and, you know, they weren't good anymore. So you got rid of those and you got robes like all brand new, beautiful silk robes. I mean, you have so many closets full of them, you can't even wear them all. Like how many more robes do you need, Zacchaeus? You used to have to live in a tent and then you got a house and then you bought a riverfront property on the Jordan. Now you have the biggest nicest house in town and that's not doing it for you. Like how big does your house have to be? In other words, you can be satisfied with your money, but you can never be satisfied in your money, only in God. Zacchaeus, you could find joy and contentment. You could surrender everything to me. You could follow me. You could be a generous man. You could use whatever resources God has given you to feed the hungry. I mean, people would bless you instead of curse you. You see, this moment was an incredible moment for Zacchaeus. Maybe he's never thought about these things before. Now it's like his heart is pounding out of his chest. And then this very dramatic moment comes in the story. But Zacchaeus stood up. Now in the ancient world, at a dinner, Uh, hospitality and civility was a big deal. Uh, Often the host of a formal banquet at some point would stand up and recognize all of the people there and give honor to the primary guest. And so it's not a surprising thing that Zacchaeus stands up. But when he stands, he doesn't address the people. He, He doesn't do the after dinner speech. He just looks at Jesus. It's like for Zacchaeus, in that moment, it's only Jesus and him, and his heart is racing. He has to stand up now. He can't wait another moment. Zacchaeus stands up and he says, 
Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, of course he's cheated everyone out of everything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, everyone is stunned. Like Mrs. Zacchaeus is thinking, hey, shouldn't we have talked about this before you stood up and announced this? You know, the kids are wondering, does this mean I'm not getting my own camel anymore? But Zacchaeus is so captivated by the possibility of a new way of life with Jesus and a new means to do something with his stuff that he recalculates everything in light of the kingdom of God. He says, here's what I have, but enough is less than what I have. So here's what I'm going to do. The difference between uh, what would be enough for me and what I have could become the generosity zone instead of the discontentment zone. Here and now, I'm putting a stake in the ground. The man stood up. He's going public with this. I'm giving away 50%. I believe 50% of what I have with God is more than 100% without God. I mean, that's a pretty staggering thought. I'll make things right. I'll pay back whoever I've cheated. And then Jesus stands up. And he doesn't do the after-dinner speech and talk about what, uh, you know, what a nice meal it was. He just looks right at Zacchaeus and tears must have been flooding down his face. I mean, you have to understand what's going on here. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And this language is not accidental. And there's a reason why Zacchaeus would remember this until the day he died. If you were an Israelite, about the greatest phrase that could be used to describe you would be a son of Abraham or a daughter of Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were uh, Israel. That's where Israel started. Zacchaeus was a corrupt tax collector who colluded with Rome. I mean, no one would have called him son of Abraham. Maybe they would have called him the son of something else. Uh, but he can't believe Jesus calls him that. Like what a, a gracious, amazing person Jesus was. What an amazing thing it must have been to sit down at a table with Jesus. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. And what he means is not Zacchaeus has bought his way into heaven. I mean, you can't buy your way in. You can't earn your way in. It comes as a gift of grace. Jesus stopped at that tree way before Zacchaeus had done anything uh, to merit anything. The word salvation is often translated healing or deliverance. And it means something more than just like if you believe the right thing, you can get into heaven when you die. It means now for Zacchaeus, uh, that disease of more that's been corroding his soul is being healed. He's being delivered from that treadmill that he's been running on forever and going nowhere. Here's the thing about this word enough. Enough is not a level of wealth you achieve. It's a statement of trust that you declare. Economists will talk about what's sometimes called uh, the rational theory of choice. The idea is people face their financial lives and if they're rational, you know, by a way of thinking, it's just straight math. Uh, as long as I have 100%, I keep 100%. And if I keep 100%, then I own 100%. And if some of it goes away from me, 
then I get less, then I've lost something. But the writers of scripture contest that view of financial reality. This is what God says. And you have to decide if you believe this or not. If you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then, notice, if you do that, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs. Not he will gratif gratify your every desire. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Now, you have to decide, do you believe that or not? I mean, to people who think money is just about math, God says there's a new kind of math. And Zacchaeus says, I believe in this new kind of math where 50% of what I have with Jesus is more than 100% of what I have without Jesus. There's a great book called Charity, and this is the thesis. Generosity is not just a good deed, but it's a declaration of belief about the world and the God who created it. I choose not to live in a materialistic life because I believe the world is not at its core materialistic, but rather it's spiritual. It was started in a burst of generosity on the part of God, and God operates on the basis of generosity. God loves to give, and you cannot outgive God. I mean, when you step into a life of generosity, you're stepping into uh, the jet stream of the kingdom of God. If you don't do that and you go through life saying it's all about more, more money and nicer possessions and more square feet, you're headed down a road for ruin and folly. I mean, you don't even have to believe in the Bible. All you have to do is look at the end of every human life because every human being, no matter how big a house they may live in for a certain period of time, ends up in a little pine box. We all get the same number of feet. Do you know how many? <laughs> Six feet. We all end up in the same thing. And so I ask you, will you say enough? Like little Zacchaeus. There's a parable in AA circles that I like a lot. Uh, a guy who's drunk and miserable is walking down the street and he meets God. He says, God, I can't stand it anymore. Will you give me sobriety? And God says, well, I'll do it, but it'll cost you. You're going to have to give me all of your money. It's a costly gift. The guy says, okay, it's worth it. So he has like $50 in his wallet and he says, here, God, take it all. It's yours. God says, okay, well, here's the gift of sobriety. And the guy says, oh, that's great. Thank you. But now you took all of my money. How am I going to put gas in my car? And God says, oh, you have a car? You didn't tell me that. You have to give me your car. The guy says, all right, God, but uh, here's my car. But how am I going to get to my job? God says, oh, you have a job? You didn't tell me that. You're going to have to give me your job. The guy says, all right, but how am I going to take care of my mortgage? God says, mortgage? You have a house? You didn't tell me. You have to give me your house. The guy says, well, how am I going to take care of my family? And God says, here's the deal. You give me all of your money. You give me your car. You give me your job. You give me your house. And then I'll be with you. And I'll take care of you. And you can use my money and drive my car and work at my job and live in my house. 
the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we just get to steward it for a little while. One day, it will all go back to him. And when we steward it with generosity, it just works better than if we hold it in a clenched fist. So here's my dream for you and for me. And I get that it's scary, but what if we were the church of the open hand? Because where we are in the Bay Area, uh, where there has been an explosion of wealth, like unprecedented in the history of the world, an explosion of affluence, unprecedented in the history of the world, and an explosion of discontentment and envy, unprecedented in the world. I mean, what if we became a community with our hands open? Like, what if we all did this? And again, I get the fear part. I feel it too. But I want to ask you, as your pastor, as someone who wants you to experience joy and life to the fullest, when it comes to your finances, are you tithing? Have you made that commitment that the first 10% of whatever God gives to you, it's going back to him? I have to tell you, if you're not, you're missing out. If you're not trusting God with what he has given you, you're missing out on the kind of life that he has for you. If you haven't done that, I hope you'll do that. And I hope what happened to little Zacchaeus happens to you. I hope this is the day that you put a stake in the ground and declare, here and now, God, I'm gonna be a generous person. And I will trust that with less, uh, I have more if you're in it. All right, so that's the word enough. It's a great word. And it's yours if you want it. All right, let me pray for you. Uh, and I would ask that you would just bow your head and close your eyes. And I want to invite you now to talk to God about this. And if you want to, just kind of like open your palms up. Uh, just take it from a clenched fist to just like an open palm before God. And whatever you need to tell him. God, I feel like I've messed up in my financial life. God, I'm scared. Jesus is with you right now, just like he was with little Zacchaeus. He's just waiting to hear from you. All right, God, now we sit here with our hands open, expressing with our body that uh, we have enough. We're gonna start living with uh, our hands open before you that we will be generous with what you've entrusted to us, that we'll share. God, some of us need to take a, a step in our spiritual journey financially and start trusting you more. I pray that you would continue to uh, speak to their hearts and minds and uh, maybe this story that they would come back to it and that they would be reminded of what you can do in a life and through a life that is open and available to you, to be used by you. God, would you change our hearts when it comes to money, when it comes to possessions? Help us to hold our things loosely and to just trust you that you're gonna give us what we need. And if we live generously, that's gonna lead to life and joy the way that you designed us to live. God, would you lead us there? And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. 
Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.